Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Tom get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, May the 14th, 2013, and this is episode 1130 of the Survival Podcast. I'm calling it All About Urban Homesteading. <laughs> yeah, some people get it. Uh, and that's really urban homesteading, uh, micro homesteading, suburban homesteading. You could be rural and still kind of be in this kind of vein of things if, if you get my drift. Uh, but we're going to call it urban homesteading today because for many people, that's what they call it. And uh, it should be a good show. And uh, the reason I'm going to do this show is because I know that many of the audience do not live on, you know, even one acre little homesteads. A lot of the guys... I'd say at least 50% or more of the audience lives on, let's say, one-tenth to one-quarter to maybe, if they're lucky, a half of an acre, and live in an urban-suburban-slash-style setting. And with that many people living that way, and I talk a lot about homesteading activities and things like that because it is a great route towards self-reliance and self-sufficiency, a lot of times I think those people feel left out. So I'm going to address those concerns today and try to help you along your walk to become an urban homesteader. And even if you're not an urban homesteader, certainly anything that you could do in an urban environment, you could do in a rural environment. But there's even some advantages to the small spaces. We'll talk about that today, too. But my point is this show should be for everybody. You apartment dwellers, uh, maybe not so much right now. You can do a little bit with your balcony or whatever, but... Hopefully you have the dream of one day having some land you can work with because I think at the end of the day, show you'll understand why I think that this really, the whole homesteading movement is a solution to a lot of America's problems. Before I get into that, though, I do need to take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. Uh, I'll tell you what, I didn't plan it that way, but isn't that a great sponsor for today? Marjorie Wildcraft will help you do a lot of the things I'm talking about today. And she teaches you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. You can find out more at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors provide some of the finest training in firearms usage available anywhere in the country. And if you want customized training, they can set that up for you. They can also provide uh, medical-based training as well. If you're going to carry out around a weapon that can, that can cause the loss of life, you should have uh, equivalent medical training to go along with it. If you're somewhere and you ever need to use that weapon, there's a good chance that somebody's going to need aid rendered. That may you know, probably not going to be the person you had to uh, turn the weapon on, but generally speaking, when there's a lethal conflict, if somebody did something that would elevate it to that level, and a lot of times the guy that responds, the armed citizen, is not the, the initial victim. It's somebody else, and that victim might be lying there. Now, you've intervened, but that person still might die, and you might have an opportunity to save their life. Or with this training, you might even be somewhere that you'll save a life that has nothing to do with firearms. The two, though, do go together. I talk about the triangle of being a gun owner, the gun, the ammo, and the training. Frank will get that done for you at FortressDefense.com. Next, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you'll get discounts uh, to almost 40 vendors now, and I'm adding new ones all the time. I just added Mai Tai Coffee. They are awesome. Let me tell you how awesome these guys are. So I sent the, 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 uh, the, my contact there an email. And you guys that are coming to the, my uh, my workshop next week, you guys are going to love this. I said, uh, could you send me a bag or two of coffee so I can make these guys your coffee while they're here as part of our breakfast every morning? And he said, sure. And then he got back to me and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send every single one of your people 
uh, an aluminum coffee mug, a steel or a steel coffee mug with the Mai Tai logo. So you guys are all getting one of those. So they're a great company and uh, stepped up and sponsored the event. Check them out. Their coffee is amazing. Again, Mai Tai. Uh, coffee, M-A-I-T-H-A-I dot com, and you'll find them in your member support brigade. Listen, is one of the newest vendors. That's just one example of the great discounts I put together for you guys. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Since I value your service highly, I provide you a discount. If you'll email me with service discount in the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did for your prior service. I'll send you a discount code before you join. Don't do this after you join. But thank you for your service. And I also extend that to people like first responders, like EMTs, paramedics, uh, and firefighters. So that wraps up the, uh, the general housekeeping. I have a little announcement today. Last night, I put out a blog post that said today I would be supporting the relaunch of SilverBulletSilverShield.com, which is the web store that Chris Dwayne and Rob Gray were running together. And, of course, we all know about the Chris Dwayne drama and his 20 million updates and everything else and his slanderous attacks on Rob. And when Rob came to me and asked me if I would support that, I said, well, it's not really my thing, dude. It's not really my fight. I, but I decided to do it, and I said that today I would explain how and why. I'm going to give you the short version, but there's a 15-minute video that I'm uploading to YouTube right now, so it should be live by the time you hear this. Many of you might have already seen it. That will explain the entire story, and I'm going to give you the uh, the Reader's Digest digest version, right? The digest of the digest. Basically, this is the way it works out. Chris Dwayne had an agreement with an artist, and they were supposed to do this together. When he met Rob after I introduced the two of them, right about the time that Rob went to Washington to meet with Congress and Rob, Ron Paul's subcommittee, uh, Chris and Rob began a relationship, and that turned into a partnership, and that turned into Silver Bullet, Silver Shield. Rob put in a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of time, and a lot of effort and took these drawings that the original artist did that Chris provided to him and used his graphics team and his sculptors and his die cutters to turn them into the final products that were used to make Silver Bullet Silver Shield coins. All along the way, the artist was going, hey, you left me hanging. You, this is my concept. I came up with this, and I provide the original drawings in the video and some supporting documentation with the video that shows this all to be true. You know, if you don't want to work with me anymore, fine, but don't you think I should be compensated? The guy wanted like a thousand bucks. Now, Chris made six figures plus that's already been paid to him on this deal, but he wouldn't give this guy a thousand bucks. The guy even eventually said, just give me ten ounces of silver. You know, I just want to be acknowledged for what I did. And Chris crapped all, all over the guy. And Rob said, you know, take care of it. And Chris sent email back to, to Rob and said, I'll take care of it, don't worry. And he never did. And then Chris threw his adult temper tantrum and flipped out. And the artist is still left hanging. So Rob went out and paid the artist. He paid the artist his fee, and Rob now has the ownership of the designs from the original concept and then as the creator in his side of his investment of the partnership for all of this stuff. So Rob said, if you do this, I'll pay you three bucks a coin is cutting to the chase. And um, I said, I don't really want money, and I don't know if I really want to do this. But when I heard the backstory and I realized that the artist had been screwed, this is the, the way I found a solution. Rob's going to provide me with an affiliate tracking link. Uh, for the relaunch of SBSS. And I will put that out on my website. You guys can click through there. And if you guys want to buy one of these awesome new coins that they're putting together, I think that would be a great idea. And the money that was going to be paid to me will now be paid to the artist, Johan, who drew the original drawings, who got screwed in all this. I'm taking not a penny for it. I'm assisting with the relaunch. And then SBSS is its own ship with its own captain. And I'm worried about TSP Mint. Effectively here, guys, understand, I am supporting a competitor. 
Now, I've been offered an affiliate relationship that would make a competitor half a competitor. But I'm not really here to build somebody else's brand. But Rob's a partner. Rob was done wrong in this. The artist was definitely done wrong in this. And I'm going to do what I can to balance the scales of justice and honor for the little guy. By the way, this artist doesn't know me. He's never met me. And I guarantee you before today, he's probably never even heard of me. But he's going to be the benefactor of my philanthropy. And those of you that have known me for a long time know that I always stick up for the little guy whenever I can. If you want the full details along with supporting documentation, there'll be a link in today's show notes. Again, today's episode is 1130. You can link on over to YouTube and you can see a video of me for 15 minutes explaining the entire backstory, the entire nature of a legal partnership, providing all the corroborating supporting material that shows everything I've just told you to be true. Or since we've been together now for almost five years and I've never steered you wrong, you can take me at my word, but it's up to you. The information is there for those that want it. In fact, I have a lot more information. I have a lot more email chains, but I only released what I felt was necessary. I don't feel it's it's necessary to air more dirty laundry uh, than it's absolutely necessary to put a cap on this piece of information uh, or on this on this situation. And again, I'm done now. I'm done with this. This is behind me. I've helped a partner. I've helped the little guy. I've responded to malicious attacks to my honor and in my integrity by Chris Dwayne. And Chris, I don't need to insult you. Every time you open your mouth about this and do another update, you look, you make yourself look worse. So just keep talking, buddy. Keep making yourself look worse. Keep asking for credit for being a Marine and then crapping on the Marines that are currently serving. Keep doing that, buddy, and see how it works out for you. I and other folks here have more important things to do with our time than worry about your temper tantrums. All right, so that is done. Let's get into the main topic today. I want to start out with what makes an urban homestead urban in the first place? Is it size or location or what? What what actually makes an urban homestead an urban homestead? And I think in most people's minds, when they hear urban, they think of the inner city. They think of like a downtown district or something like that, high-density population. But when you say urban homestead, the, the image usually changes. Like it could be that or it could be the suburbs. It, it could be a lot of different things and still be an urban homestead. And when you think about suburbs, right, the suburban, it's still like urban. So urban covers or true urban and suburban. So that location kind of comes to mind for people. But I, I think the reality is when you look at the techniques that are used and the, the advantages and disadvantages, it really comes down to size. I mean, as long as you're not being harassed with codes, nosy neighbors, and, and things like that, uh, and, and what do you, could, homeowners associations, which never join a homeowners association. Don't buy a property with a homeowners association. Don't do it. Because you're just, you're just adding a layer of government to your life. If, if you've never thought about it that way, please do and, and don't do it. So unless you're doing that, if you had five acres, you know, right in, in the smack down in the middle of downtown any town USA, well, you can still do most of the same things that you would do with five acres if you were a hundred miles from nowhere. In fact, you might have more resources and more uh, assistance in getting things done and things like that as far as if you wanted to hire equipment operators and stuff. If you wanted to market a product, actually being located closer in would make it easier to market a product. So to me, when I talk about urban today, I'm really talking about the scale, right? So people that are working with a tenth to a half of an acre and, and maybe a little bit more. But, you know, as you get out to like one to two acres, one to two acres will wear you out. 
And I also want to kind of explain to you where I'm coming at this from today. Uh, I had a place down in Arlington, Texas not so long ago that was a third of an acre. And I'd say 70 to 75% of that third of an acre was in the backyard. And we did a lot there with that. We never took it to the extreme because we always knew we were going to sell it. Uh, but we did learn a lot about that urban environment, what you could do, what would cause a complaint call, what would mediate that and mitigate it, and what would how to talk to authorities if they did say something uh, about a complaining neighbor when the complaining neighbor really didn't have a leg to stand on, but the person that took the complaint just wanted the complaint to go away and how to be nice about telling them, get out of here, I'm not doing it, you can't make me, and you don't say it that way. And So we got that experience. So then after that, We ended up in the rural mountains, uh, uh, what are known as the Washita Mountains of uh, Arkansas. And that is a very rugged mountain environment. I would say we had a mountain homestead. And and I had that property for quite a while before we we spent most of our time there. Uh, When we had the place in Arlington, we used it kind of as as a fallback location. That was its original intention when we bought it. After that, um, we, we sold that property, and now we have three acres in an area that's almost the suburbs. It's not, but it almost is. I mean, like, the suburbs are just down the road, the typical, and they're actually really big houses and really big yards, like one-acre yards and stuff like that. And then just down from there, you get into typical suburban America uh, neighborhoods and things like that. So we're in this middle ground now. And... I kind of feel like we have it perfect. I'd like more land, and there's a couple opportunities to maybe pick up some land. I have a neighbor behind me that's getting older. He's got six acres, and I think he might be interested in eventually selling half of it. I've got a really dilapidated piece of land that adjoins my other property line, and as soon as that guy wakes up to the fact that his land is not worth what he thinks it is and gets tired of paying tax on it, I might be able to buy that. So I might be able to expand this to six to nine acres at some point, which is pretty significant, but for now it's three. And we're also trying to make it a showcase property. So, you know, we're going to bring in one of the best designers in the world to do the mainframe earthworks design for most of the property. And yet we're going to take a little 2,700 square foot piece between two outbuildings and manage that one area as though it was an urban homestead in of itself. Worm bins, fish ponds, everything. So I'm coming from that perspective of kind of seeing it from all sides and saying, well, if that's where you're going to put down an anchor... There's some real advantages there. But I've also learned about some unique challenges and concerns that you need to think about. And some of you, even if you're going to urban homestead, and you know that's the path forward, maybe in a position where you need a new property before you do it. And some of you can just anchor down where you're at and do it. And some of you can do that, but then you're going to give certain things up. In other words... It would probably be easier to find a property where you're allowed to keep four laying hens than it would be to fight your town council to get it done. Though I applaud you for fighting it, and sometimes it does happen. The problem is a lot of times the way it happens is so directly related to the person fighting it that it doesn't really help everyone. So the person that owns an acre fights for an ordinance that allows chickens for people that have a minimum of an acre, and that leaves everybody with a half acre out. And, you know, you can keep birds on a a quarter-acre property easy without disturbing your neighbors as long as you don't have roosters. They don't stink. They don't smell. That's all BS. And it's it's probably one of the number one things you can do to improve your self-reliance with protein production to just have a small flock, three or four laying hens. 
So if you want that, and then you have their manure, and that adds to your compost, and it helps to build soil. And even with a small flock that you keep in a you know, multi-coop-and-run situation, occasionally you can put them into your garden and use them as a workforce. There's just so much that brings to the table. If you look at something like small goats, then you've got a source of milk if that's what you want to do. I don't want to milk goats, so I'm not going to do it even though I could. But there's places where you can have a couple goats, and there's places where you can't. So you really have to think about what you want and decide where I'm living. Let's not just talk about space now. Let's talk about logistics. Let's talk about legal codes. Let's talk about restrictions. Does this place afford me the ability to do the things that I want to do? And if the answer is no, but when you say, could I afford to, does it make sense to sell this place and move to a place that's a little bit more libertarian right now, and the answer is no, then you got to make do with what you have. Very few places will you not be able to at least put a garden in the backyard or things like that. I do occasionally get people that email me and say, my guard, my yard is 100% completely shaded at all times. What can I grow? And the answer is a few things, currants, gooseberries, and any type of shade-tolerant plant, but it's not going to be highly productive. So, you know, you're in a place where either you're cutting some trees or you're accepting that you're going to grow mushrooms and fish. And, you know, there is that option, too, that if you if you have a highly shaded area, you do what works there. And I think that's one of the things that we really have to start looking at. When it's not in the cards to move anywhere, what can you do with what you have? Because that's what the original homesteaders did. You know, I said yesterday that I think that maybe when we hear the greatest generation chanted into our brains over and over again about the World War II generation, that maybe that's not true. Maybe they were a great generation, but not the greatest. Maybe the greatest generation of America's was the original homesteader generation, a multi-generation group of people that from the foundation of the Republic forward went out and carved a nation out of a wilderness, that those people really were the greatest generation of Americans, the ones that went out into the mountains and the Midwest and, and took 40 acres of sod and turned it into a farm. And they did what they could with what they had. Because they didn't have a lot. We can learn from those folks, and we have a hell of a lot more advantages than they do. These were people that, I, as I mentioned yesterday, there were stories of people that they worked their brains out in factories and, and bar rooms and wherever they could find to get work. And, you know, they would work 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, saving every penny they had. And they would build a little shack somewhere, just an ad hoc shack on the outskirts of a town, pieced together with scrap wood and whatever nails they could get their hands on. And no one really cared. Those little little like little like slum towns existed back in those times, and people were like, well, no one else is using it. Let them alone. So those people would live in places like that, but they would live there just long enough to save up money. And some of them eventually would get a proper house or something like that, but a lot of them would take a hammer to that thing and take it apart. And whatever could fit on a carriage and was useful and could be taken would be taken with them. And whatever was left, they would set it on fire, dig through the ashes and pick out the nails, pack the nails into a bag and take the nails with them because they knew where they were going. There wasn't going to be any place to buy nails. That's doing what you can with what you have. And if they can do that, imagine what we can do in our modern Marvel world with a suburban backyard if we really want to. So there's challenges, but they're all easily met if we just get our head around how small they are in comparison to what other great people did before us. 
Um, how much land do you really need to have to have a true homestead feel, to like walk into your backyard and feel like this place provides for me? And I'd say probably about a tenth of an acre. I, I think you could pull it off there. I think it's better to have more. I think as you get into the quarter acre range, especially if you're in a place with low restrictions, you can do so much on a quarter of an acre. You, you really can. And if you can get into that half acre range, I mean, there isn't actually a lot for the person that works full time and, and, and can't be there all the time. There isn't a lot of things you really can't do with a half of an acre. Can you run 20 head of cattle? No. Are you probably going to run 20 head of cattle if you're working nine hours a day? Probably not. And I don't think most of us really have that dream. If you do, then you need the proper kind of land to be able to paddock shift and do that in. And I think it's a great thing, but I think that it's it's not really that big a deal that a half acre won't do it if you're the half acre guy or the quarter acre guy. But I, I think you got to get into that tenth of an acre range. If you if you end up with a complete postage stamp, I think you can do a lot of things with permaculture. I think you can actually provide a lot of herbs and some veg and and, and some fruits and stuff like that, berries. But I don't think you can really feel like I've got something going on that, that's big time going to make a difference in my life if, if things break down or if I just have some hiccups in my own life. I, I don't think you'll almost feel like, and you know, you hear the term earthship with rammed tires and the typical desert earthship, but a real homestead is kind of like a ship. It cares for you. It provides for itself and it, It is self-replicating and self-sustaining to some degree. You might need to, to help it along, but it will do its job to a large degree with its own productive systems if you establish it right. If you think about it, there's, you know, why do they always say that a ship is a she? Because the men that sailed at sea were held in her belly and cared for and protected by the ship. Well, that's what our homestead should feel like. When you, when you walk out of your door, you shouldn't just have pride of ownership. You should feel like a part of something. And you should feel like a part of something that you contribute to, but it contributes back to you. It shouldn't be seen as a burden. It should be seen as something that you love so much you would want one of your children to inherit it one day, not for it to be sold off. In fact, I would tell you if you have a place that you're – totally okay with when you're gone and just being sold and changed and not taking its its legacy with it, it's probably not a homestead yet. You probably still have some work to do. And and that, to me, has to have a little bit of property to get that done. And I would tell you, if I was looking for a place and I was going to do the urban thing, I'd be looking at quarter acre lot range. And I would want as much of it as possible in the backyard. I really lucked out with my third of an acre in Arlington because the front was a postage stamp. I'm talking, I could cut the entire front yard with a push mower in about five minutes. You know, I mean, it, really, that's, I mean, that's how, there was like one part that maybe took an extra couple of minutes because it was weird the way it went around my, my neighbor's lawn and stuff like that. He was a weird guy and got upset if I cut an inch of his grass. So I had to be careful and shut the mower off and just kind of a weird guy for a while anyway. And, uh, and, and, but other than that, I mean, it was really a five minute job. It was that small. And, uh, weird guys like that, you want to try to avoid them too. But if you have, Most of the property in the backyard with a privacy fence, people generally don't bitch about things unless they see them. So, you know, that mitigates a lot of things. So I'm looking, ideally, 
for that quarter to half acre size lot with the majority of the space in the backyard. Because in a lot of places, you're going to end up kind of forced into the front yard grass crap. And that's just a lot of work and maintenance for nothing. And that's counter to what a homestead is. Now, I do have a, a suggestion for how you deal with the whole front yard garden thing. You don't plant a garden, you plant trees. You plant a crap ton of fruit trees, and you let nature take its course. And by the time the trees are all up and beautiful, the grass is shaded out, it's less maintenance, and they're just trees. And people generally don't bitch about trees. So I would put some trees and bushes out front, and I'd even plant the nature strip or the median strip, whatever you call it, on the other side of the sidewalk if you have that. And I would go with, with, with permanent plantings out there uh, that, that look like ornamental plantings unless you go over and say, oh, gee, there's some fruit on there. So that's how I'd handle that. But I wouldn't want too much of that space out front. I'd want it out back. Um, I would also really want a place that I can keep some animals. Uh, it, I don't have to have a, a you know a, a goat herd to be happy. But if you can't even have some rabbits or some chickens, you've got a problem. And the reason you have a problem is you'll never be producing your own protein. You'll never have the fertility. And I think that the two easy ones that, that, that really kind of do that for you, and I think quail have a place here too. And you know if you can raise those in a garage, you can pretty much get away with it anywhere. But the chicken has characteristics and, 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 and traits and things that it does that are very useful when channeled. And again, simple things like, okay, there's my garden, and it's fall, and I'm about to cover crop it. And I want to control pests for next year, so I'm just going to put some fencing around it, little little plastic fencing around it for a couple of days, and I'm just going to put the birds in there. You know, and it doesn't have to be some dramatic paddock shift or anything. You go in the coop in the morning when they're still kind of duh, and you don't have to chase them around. Then you pick them up, you carry them under your arm, you pitch them in there for the day, and at the end of the day, they'll happily go back to their coop. That's where they want to be. And you let them really work that garden over for two or three or four days. Your pest problems go down. The fertility comes up. They do a lot of cultivation for you. Uh, with rabbits, you have some of the best high-quality manure that you could ever have. I'm thinking about adding rabbits next year, and I'm not even concerned so much about how much meat I get. The fact that you have that endless source of fertility that doesn't have to be composted is just awesome. I mean, rabbit pellets are one of the few manures that you could just put right onto a garden with no concerns. Uh, no concerns from a safety standpoint and no concerns from an excessive uh, fertility that causes root burning and things like that standpoint. It's, it's, it is just absolutely one of the best things you could have for your garden. And for the urban homesteader that drives by a Starbucks every day with a rabbit pen that can pick up, you know, a big bag of coffee grinds, you know, once a month and use those two as soil amendments, put in a little worm bin. I mean, the fertility that you can build on that small property is amazing. And if you just keep working it over time, and I'm going to just start with a couple beds here and then and add another bed and add another bed. I'm going to put a deck in here. Maybe you want a little patch of grass for the dogs and the kids to run around on. That's fine. And you decide where that's going to be. You can really do things in that small space that you could never accomplish on a broad acre. You, you just couldn't. You could never build the soil the way that you can. Well, you could, but it would take a lot longer, and you need a lot of animals to do it. With uh, with a rabbit hutch or four laying hens, and uh, or both, and some uh, free Starbucks stuff, and uh, some soil amendments, and making up some weed tea, and and doing some mulching and picking up free leaves from your neighbors every year when they rake them up and go to get rid of them and 
running them through a small shredder and composting and mulching with that. I mean, in just a few years, you can turn a backyard into one of the most fertile things on planet Earth. You can literally create a Garden of Eden, and you create a natural system that begins to self-replicate itself. And yeah, you can do that right in the middle of an urban setting as an urban homesteader. Um, I do think there's a lot of things you can do to re, you know, increase your self-reliance as an urban homesteader, too, even in the middle of the city. I, I think one of the, the things you really should look at is rain catchment. And I know you guys in Colorado are going to say you can't do it. But I've actually never heard of anybody prosecuted for a rain barrel in Colorado. I think if you put in like a 500-gallon cistern and it's obvious, you might have an issue. But, you know, is it obvious is another thing. There's a lot of different ways to put in rain catchment and put in lots of different things that are holding water that don't maybe look like things that are holding water. Well, what do you mean, Jack? Well, get creative. You know, they say don't ask for, for, uh, for permission, ask for forgiveness. I say that's bad advice. If you do something and it's not wrong, don't ask for forgiveness, defend it, but don't pick a fight when you don't have to. So one way that I might collect an awful lot of rainwater in Colorado and have no problem doing it is I might build really nice wooden, tall planter boxes. And at the top of those planter boxes, you know, I might put a planter, a shallow planter with a bunch of plants in it. But underneath that planter might be, you know, a... 50 or 60 or 80 gallon tough garbage can. They even make those things up to 95 pounds. 95 pounds, 95 gallons. That'd be a pretty big planter box, but hey, I like planter boxes. And that barrel, that can would be hidden. I could even put a wicking system down into it to make a giant self-watering container, but there's more water there than that plant needs, and then I could use that water to water various in-ground plantings, and I could do that in a place where I'm not supposed to do it. Does it mean that I can't do it if I'm creative? And I might even want to do that just for aesthetics in a place where it's okay to catch rainwater. But I mean, I think that you're, you know, if you can do it, you're better off putting in, you know, a 500 to 1,000 gallon rain catch tank. We're about to put in a 1,500 gallon rain catch tank in our uh, little suburban model garden that we're going to start creating after we finish these contour beds. And uh, it's really simple to do, and you can push that water all around a small property. So I think rain catchment is one of the things you can really do to increase your self-reliance. Because if the water doesn't work, um, you've got a solution there. And, you know, if you can even hold 500 gallons of water, you can get through a lot of drought periods. And you've also got that water in reserve. I think a pool makes sense. We're putting a pool in. Um, not for irrigation, but the water's there. And if you went into a long-term grid-down scenario, you could stop treating that pool water Uh, like pool water, you could take a lot of it out and treat it so that you could drink it, and you could use a lot of it for irrigation as you let the chlorine and other things off-gas over time. You could push that water into smaller pools, like small six-foot round, two-foot deep stock tanks, and allow the water to off-gas in there before you use it for irrigation. There's a lot of things that you can do with that water if it comes down to it, but it's also nice to have, right? Um So that's just one way you could increase the water self-reliance to a, to a degree. But it's an expensive way to do it, and I would see that as a advantage of having a pool, not a justification for putting it in. So the next thing that I think you can do to really increase your self-reliance in the city is to begin networking with neighbors. And I think it's easier to do in the city because when you walk around your block or down the sidewalk, they're there. 
And if you just take a walk when everybody's coming home from work, you'll get an easy chance to introduce yourself. And, you know, where I'm at now, we're all friendly with each other, but we probably don't interact as much as we would if we all didn't have three acres. The guy over me has got six, and the next person over there has a couple, and the guy across the street has 15 or 20, and the guy next to him has like 30, and we're set back off the road, and we all have gates and things like that. And it's, it's a nice way to live, but it's a little harder to network. So by networking with your neighbors and forming the community that we're always talking about, you can rely on each other a lot more. And it's an interesting thing. As long as you don't move to some uptight, white-collar, yuppie bullshit neighborhood, when you start doing these little homesteading things and people come over and see it, They generally kind of like go, that's really cool. And a lot of times they want to do it too. And you can kind of be their mentor and help them do that. And the more people you can get homesteading in an urban neighborhood, the better it is for everybody. So networking is another thing that I think you can do. Definitely, I think, I've already said this, but chickens. I think chickens are one of the greatest self-reliance tools known to man. They require very little cost to feed, especially once they're talking about a small flock, mainly for, uh, for, for eggs. They'll process a lot of your waste for you. They'll do a lot of work for you, and they'll reward you with eggs. And as you get birds that retired, yeah, you can take them for meat, but I don't see chicken meat production being a, a big viable solution in most urban environments. If you had an acre and you're kind of in that middle area and you wanted to raise up a dozen or two dozen broilers every year and tractor them, as long as you live in an area where nobody's going to complain, you could do that pretty much no problem. Uh, but I definitely think chickens are one of your keys to self-reliance in an urban homesteading environment. I think setting up some sort of an outdoor kitchen area where you can process foods and things like that in an enjoyable way without heating up your kitchen in the summertime and convert a lot of that surplus into long-term storage is really another way to increase that self-reliance. It doesn't do you that much good to produce, you know, 200 pounds of tomatoes, which is something you can do. If you end up, you know, and you might want to give a lot of it away, that's fine, but it doesn't really help your self-reliance. It helps your community building, but if you could can a bunch of it or dry them or freeze them or whatever it is that you decide you want to do with them, they're going to do more for you. They're going to pay dividends long after the first frost has arrived. So putting in some sort of an outdoor kitchen food processing area, something like that, is a great way to increase the validity of an urban homestead from a self-reliance standpoint. I think ponds, and I don't think they have to be huge. I'm talking 500, 800 gallons, somewhere in that range. Stock tanks that you turn into ponds, prefabricated shells, uh, pond liner-driven ponds, just digging a depression and lining it with bentonite. If you can put in any level of fish production, you've got two things now. With the intention, intensive management of a small space, it doesn't even have to be aquaponics. You can put in a, circula, a, a slow circling filter. So basically, you bring the water out of the, of the pond. It goes into a big drum, that, and it comes in at an angle so that it creates a cyclonic effect so that you get the water spinning, but it's a very, very slow spin. A lot of the sediment and waste will filter to the bottom as a sludge and be a source of fertility and increase the number of fish that you can have. And you push that back through a biofilter. I do think it makes sense to do things like you can even do aquaponics in a really simplistic way. If you then take that water and push it through a reed bed and then put that reed bed water back into your pond, you've really done a lot from a biological filtration standpoint, and you're actually doing aquaponics on a much more laid-back, easy scale. 
because that reed bed is just growing weeds, reeds, which are not really that big a deal for you know dining on. But we can then take those reeds and use them as mulch material, very, very high-quality, nutrient-rich mulching material. And we can then take and grow things in our pond with our fish that are very, very highly productive, like Chinese water chestnut, which is the most productive plant in the world by square foot. And they're quite expensive when you get them fresh instead of those canned things. And there's a reason. They're, they're a great plant. The next thing I think you can do is move into some things that are really easy to grow with that are highly productive. One would be Jerusalem artichokes. Jerusalem artichokes, you plant two or three of those things in nice, good, highly tilthed soil, stuff that's really loamy and rich and will let them branch out and form tubers. And you get 10, 15 pounds per plant. And that's probably more Jerusalem artichokes than you want to eat in a year, unless you really, really like them. And I like them, believe it or not, raw. You just can't eat too many or they will uh, they will make you unwelcome in confined spaces. I'll leave it at that. They do have a tendency to produce gas. But you take them and you peel them and slice them thin on a salad. They're awesome that way. And you can grow more than you need for that with two or three plants. And then the interesting thing is, even when you think you've gotten all the pieces of them out, Make sure you put them in an area where, you know, it's fine that they spread in that area. There's something to keep them from spreading because they're just going to come back. And they'll come back year after year after year after year. So I would work with things like that. I would also try to bring in annuals that are highly self-receding annuals that will just be popping up all over the place. Some of my favorites are um, amaranth, especially the Hopi Red Dye Amaranth. That's a great amaranth for a vegetable use for using the leaves and sautés and salads and things like that. It's, it's really, uh, so it's great for that. But once you plant it and you get it going, it'll just be popping up year after year after year. Uh, a weed that everybody seems to hate, lamb's quarters, is the same way. Once you get it established, it'll be coming back. And people say, well, if it gets in your garden, like a billion of them come up. But when they're little, they're, they're, they're perfect for pot herbs. You just eat them. And when they're little and the roots haven't formed yet, they're so easy to pull out. You just reach down and pick them up. Pick, pick the whole plant. Cut the root off. Toss it to the side in your compost or whatever. And take the plants and eat them. So that's not a problem. That's a good thing. So I like amaranth for that. Parsley. Plant parsley in a bunch of locations. And let some of it go to seed in its second year. And then just start broadcasting parsley seed everywhere. Basil's the same way. If basil grows in a place, you let it go to seed... Um, and the nice thing about basil, when it goes to seed, it's it's just as good to eat the leaves when it's in seed form as when it's when it's in you know pre-seed form. Which parsley changes, you know, uh, coriander changes when it goes, you know, from what we call cilantro to coriander when it bolts and goes to seed, and it's just not as palatable. Lettuce when it goes to seed is not palatable. Basil can go to seed and keep growing and produce more and more and more. So basil and parsley in, in heavy amounts. And it doesn't need to be a lot in your first year. Just really harvest that seed. So get these plantings in that come back over and over and over again. And when they pop up somewhere, just encourage that where you want them and discourage it where you don't. Plant tons of herbs. Herbs help with your cooking. They help with your predator habitat. There's some herbs you need to think about where you're going to confine them to, like mint and bee balm and things like that that'll run. Rosemary gets into like this huge bush thing, so you got to think about where that goes. But herbs and perennial herbs, especially, and in much of the South, 
herbs like sage, uh, rosemary, definitely anywhere, rosemary, oregano, uh, become perennials. They, they are perennials. We only grow them as annuals in parts of the country because it gets so cold they don't come back. Basil is an annual, but it comes back over and over again. So tons of herbs, tons of medicinal herbs, tons of herbs that make teas and tonics, herbs. Every, if you have a patch of ground and you don't know what to do with it, Put a bunch of compost down, mulch the hell out of it, and as soon as the time of the year is right, plant it with herbs. And just marshmallow, plant it with, I don't care, plant it with you know anything you can get your hands on, more and more herbs. This will do amazing things for the overall ecosystem, it'll do amazing things for your health, and until you decide you want to put a berry bush or something there, it'll be productive. So that goes right into the next thing, berries. More so than trees, berry bushes and vines and things like that are very space conscious and hyper productive in these urban environments. So all along fence lines, all along trellises, grapes, kiwis, um, blackberries, blueberries, goji berries, whatever you like and plant what you like, but just tons and tons of things like that in space conscious ways, trained on the fences, trained on the walls. You start to do all of these things, and you start to feel very, very secure, even in, a, even in an urban, suburban environment. You start to feel like, this place can really look out for me. And is that different than the show we recently just did on, like, micro food forests? Yes and no. It depends. How much forest field do you want versus how much open field do you want? And there's this middle ground between the two. It's definitely permaculture. But it's your choice. See, this is what you, you, you really start to have to understand if you want to understand permaculture as the design and how it fits into urban homesteading or micro food forestry. It's just the paint and the canvas, but you're the artist. You know if I want a pond there, a deck there, and a pool there, or I just want the whole thing to be like a little mini jungle full of food, or I just want it to be like functional. I want bamboo and things like that in my system. You know, you know what you want, and you can build anything you want just about anywhere unless there's some part of the department of making you sad, known as like code enforcement, to prevent you from doing it. And that's really the limitation. It's not really a size and space limitation at all. I also want to point out, I understand the dream of wanting acreage. I have it. I worked hard for it. And the only thing I would want is to be a little bit bigger. So I get it. But I also get that there's some real advantages to the urban homesteading model. Number one is resources. There's resources everywhere. We talked about some with fertility, Starbucks coffee. Do you know how many neighbors uh, would be more than happy if, uh, if you said, look, I don't even want you to feel like you have to do any work. This is the kind of stuff that I compost. Can I put a bucket you know, behind the bush in your front yard. And whenever you guys have stuff like that, just throw it there. I'll come by twice a week and pick it up so it doesn't smell or get nasty. You could probably have tons of neighbors doing that for you that aren't interested in doing it themselves, but would provide those resources for you. If you get friendly with people, they might even bring it over. You might say, just put it there. And you might even have some gardening neighbors that realize that if everybody gets together and do it, they can do a lot better of a job with composting, would want some of the compost back in exchange, and that builds community. It's a lot harder to do in an area where everybody's sitting on, you know, five acres or more. Um, from a resource allocation thing as well, I mean, again, you pick your, your truck up on a Sunday afternoon in the fall. How much organic matter can you pick up? 
Not just leaves, but wood for your hugel culture or wood burning. People prune their trees, you know, at that time of year. Rake their leaves. And all that stuff's just set out. And I've never asked anybody that had stuff like that sitting out, hey, you know, you got all those leaves in those bags there. Can I take them? They're always like, yeah, sure, I don't. You know, and I've had a few people say, you really don't want that bag of leaves. And I'll say, why? And I say, well, that bag of leaves is part leaves and part trash. But those two bags, there are all leaves, you know. So that's, there's just resources everywhere in an urban environment. Uh, I think that you have a much better opportunity to put together more of a community uh, and have that type of, of dynamic going on. I think if you can get into the half acre or more, you have a pretty good opportunity to create a homestead-style business with productive productivity as well. And I think it's easier to do because there's more people to sell your products to that don't already produce their own. I think my neighbor is already really impressed at the way my uh, my tomatoes look in the little hoogle mound that they're sitting in and kind of scratching his head to why they look that good so fast. But uh, he's not going to really be that big on buying tomatoes from me because even though he grows them a little bit differently, he has plenty. And it, when you're in an area where everybody does that, it, you don't have quite the marketability of a product. The small-scale nature of the intensive management allows for hyper-productivity. You can just do things so hyper-productive because you can actually manage every square foot of a tenth to two-tenth of an acre lot. You can manage every foot. It's not possible to do that even with an acre, let alone ten. There's microclimates everywhere. You have a sunny side of the house in the morning that's, that's shaded in the afternoon. You have cool areas, hot areas, dry areas. Each one of those can be planted and managed based on its individual needs. So you have this incredible diversity of microclimate there you have a lot of shelter from harsh elements when you're in this you know higher density situation the wind is far less you know abusive causing evaporation and damage to your plantings you have fences you have other houses all these different things that block and disrupt the flow of wind where when i planted my plants early this year and the wind's coming across my neighbor's field it was just beating the crap out of it You know, and the ones that made it through, they were really tough, strong plants. But boy, giving them that little sheltered environment would have been nice. Now, are there things I can do to put shelter into that area? Yes, and I'll do them. But in most urban areas, it's already been done for you. So, so that's an advantage. So I think there's a lot of advantages. And one way to get your, your head around what you can do is to start looking for every advantage you have. And don't just look for the list of advantages I can give you. Sit down and look at your yard And look at your neighborhood and make a list of everything you love about it and everything that gives you an advantage. And even if your your goal is to move someday, doing that will make your life better. You know, I had a friend one time who was miserable in his job. And uh, he, he came to me for some advice about it. And I started talking to him. And I realized he wasn't really miserable with his job the way a lot of people are, where I just say, you need a job. He was just miserable as a person. And I said, what do you like about your job? Nothing. No, no, no. What, do you, what pays good? Okay, I get four weeks of vacation a year. I'm like, well, that's really good. He goes, yeah, and I can use it any way I want. My boss is cool. His boss is a dick, but my boss is cool. I'm like, okay. So you like, it. so he's like, I want you to make a list of 30 things you at least sort of like about your job, and I want you to read it every day. And like, he's like, that's stupid. I'm like, I'll, I'll make you a deal. If you'll do that, and you you don't feel better in 30 days reading it every day in 30 days, I'll give you a hundred bucks. So he's like, 
I'll do, I'll do that. That's, it's dumb. It's not going to matter, but I'll do that. I'll, I'll take your hundred bucks. I'm like, okay. You got to commit. You get every day, you're going to show me the list and every day you're going to read the list every morning and every night when you get home from work and you sit down, you're going to read the list. He said, okay, that's all he did. Okay. So 30 days go by and he goes, I don't know how it works, but man, do those people at work change? They are so much cooler than they used to be. You're, I don't know how it worked, but it worked. Well, those people didn't change. His attitude changed. He adapted to the situation because he focused on what was positive about the situation versus what was negative about the situation. And in the end, he did need to kind of move into a different job. And, and that's what happened. But it was done from a much more positive place that way. And I kept my hundred bucks. But so many of us look around and go, I wish I had more, I wish I had more. If we focused on the positive of what we had, we, you know, we might be able to do more. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a place for moving. There's a place for moving just across town so you can be free of restrictions. There's a place for upgrading your condition. There's a place for getting the hell out of your state. That's why I'm walking to freedom.com. But at some point, you have to anchor down. You, it's like I had a friend that used to like to go fishing. I hated to go fishing with him because we never anchored or at least set the trolling motor on slow and started cruising the shorelines. He always wanted to go somewhere else as soon as we weren't catching fish. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's go here. It's like, listen, we got to fish. I've had business partners like that with marketing. Just when you finish one marketing plan and you've got it 10% executed, they want to come up with the next one before this one's executed yet. They won't anchor down. So sooner or later, if you're going to have a homestead, you're going to have to anchor down and say, this is going to be where I make my stand. And for some of us, there's just a financial reality. Some of us can afford you know, a mid-sized property in this kind of area I'm in. Some can afford or just have a situation at hand where they can get 40 acres in the country, and it works for them. And some of us are going to have to do it right around other people, right in a typical neighborhood. And wherever that is, when you get to that point where you go, this is what it's going to be, then you've got to look at everything positive about it. I could sit here and go, man, I can't believe how much rock is here. Man, I wish the property was bigger. Man, I wish it would rain more. Man, this. Man, that. Or I can go, look at this place. Gentle sloping, good soil overall, can be shaped and made more, small enough to manage intensively, freedom to do whatever I want as far as animals go, um, you know, great outbuilding, big enough to do my courses. And you're going, well, I want that too. Well, fine, get that. Build what you want. But at some point, no matter where you are, you got to start turning your, your optics on to look at the positive of it. And in that situation, it almost always will become something amazing for you. That's looking at it through what you would call permaculture eyes. How do I turn the problems into solutions? And I think the other thing that you can do is really look at the ability to put together a group. Let's say you wanted to put together a group of people and, 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 and kind of hang out with each other a lot and homestead together and all, but all have your own space. Well, the common dream is me and my four buddies are going to go out and buy us 50 acres in the country, and we're going to build some common buildings on there and put in a ranch and do this, and we're all going to share. And, and, and then eventually it almost never happens because people start to realize, I kind of want my own space. And this doesn't really work that way. And finding you know four homesteads joined together not really easy to do. And You know, you're always the outsider coming in if people are already there. So how do you handle that? And it gets really expensive when you start looking for 50 acres or more. And then you got to build on top of it. And who gets to build their place first? And does everybody actually have any? It's, it's hard. But people like the urban farming guys have found neighborhoods that are in disarray, houses that are cheap, and just started buying up the entire block. 
so that people that are living together have all moved there consciously. Now, you may not want to do it in, in kind of a bad area of St. Louis the way that they did. And by the way, you got to check out their website if you've never had, urbanfarmingguys.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes and we'll see what they're doing. But it, it's feasible to eventually, you know, you and a buddy find two houses side by side and both buy one. Um, there's people in California, I can't remember the one place they did this, one of the few smart things done in California. I'm not being fair to California citizens, I'm really not. The California government is a lost cause, but about half of you guys are doing everything you can to save that thing from the brink, but there's like 2% more of them than you pulling you over, and there's very little you can do. So I'm, I'm sorry for the bad comment about California. Um, but this one place, they bought... Like four houses and like two in the back and two side by side. You got two side by side and two behind, and they just took down all the fences on the inside. So it's like one big fence going around the four lots. And eventually, they got to a point where they almost owned the whole block. And they have this wide open space, this huge mulberry tree. They share the, the responsibilities for the chickens, but everybody does still have their own house and their own space. Not something that you would typically be able to easily pull off. You know, moving out to the country. If you bought a big enough piece of land and you could do it, but that means everybody's got to build and it gets complex. Where all the infrastructure's there, everything's ready to go. And buying a property like that's not that difficult. It's not that hard to get financing and a mortgage if you have income and verifiable income to buy a typical house in a typical neighborhood. So it's possible. It's not the easiest, you know, order for a real estate agent. We'd like four houses adjoining and here's the criteria everybody has. But the reality is it's not that hard. Most of these neighborhoods, the houses are dramatically similar, you know. Uh, that, so that's, it, it, that's not, you know, something everybody might want to do, but at least it's possible. And, and there's a potential for that there. And, and I've seen it done in a variety of ways as well. I've seen people just simply tell a buddy, hey, man, the next door neighbor's house is going up for sale. And people that were already good friends all of a sudden are neighbors. And that, that's a cool thing. And it, it presents itself the opportunity. But if we start doing this right, that opportunity will decrease over time because people won't want to leave. One of the things Jeff's taught me, Jeff Lawton's taught me, is that when people really do up a property with permaculture, the, the, the turnover of that property dramatically drops. The value goes way up, but nobody wants to leave. Why? I mean, you've got so much into it. It took so much work and so much time. People fall in love with their property and fall in love with their neighborhoods. And when, Can you imagine when a whole neighborhood starts to at least do a little bit of this? The community that's built, it's a great opportunity that's out there. And it's why I feel that homesteading is really a solution to many of America's problems in all locations. That This is the problem that we have today. I'll define the problem and then I think maybe you'll see the solution. So... Uh, tell me if you've ever heard a description like this of today's America before, and if you think it's at least accurate in many places and with many people. No one values things the way they used to, and families are fractured and falling apart. Divorce is far too common. People move every couple of years, and they just move up, up, up into McMansions and, 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 and are highly resource, uh, utilize, using a lot of resources and giving very little back. People are slaves to debt. They live in that, that situation for their entire lives, and they die owing more than they're worth, and they're, they're leaving no inheritance to their children anymore. Their children, in many ways, don't deserve it anyway because they're self-absorbed brats. 
And they are living the same materialistic lifestyle, and they're doing it almost on steroids. Our, our youth no longer value work. They don't want to work hard. They want all the stuff, but they don't want to put the time in. Nobody wants to get their hands dirty anymore. People don't know where their food comes. They've lost touch with the farmers to produce their food. They're eating food that's toxic to their systems. The workday has become a work menagerie where people are expected to work their brains out and give their soul and lifeblood to companies. Many times these companies abuse them as young workers and underpay them when they're not that experienced, suck everything they can get out of them in their prime years, their 30s and 40s, and then find reasons to not keep them around long enough for retirement. And we have a lot of highly skilled people in their 50s and 60s doing menial work because at their age it's all they can find because there's that next generation of go-getters and young people to, 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 to suck the lifeblood out of. Everybody in this country seems to be heavily focused on mostly the material goods. Most of the stuff that we buy today and spend our money on and do so with debt actually loses value over time and is junk and is only going to be replaced in a couple years anyway. We're often actually buying a replacement product while we still have debt on the original product that's now obsolete. Sound like America today? You tell me homesteading doesn't address every single bit of that at least a little bit. And I can't fix all of the problems. I don't think it's possible, but I think that if we can start that process moving forward, we can make people value work again by showing them the results of work. The reason people don't value work today, folks, is, is it's not because they're bad people. We're human beings. If human beings once valued work and now they don't, it's not the human being that changed. It's the dynamic of the system that changed that the human being is in. People don't value work because they don't see the results of their work. They don't feel that the results of their work matters. But when you put work into a backyard or a small ranchette, you see the results of your work. You eat the results of your work, and you share the results of your work. That makes you start to value work. As soon as you start to value work, you're willing to do work, and you're willing to share the knowledge of how to do things with others, and that begins to restore community. When you start to value your work and your home and your place, you start to value your family more and you value your spouse more and you realize how much you love them in the first place and why you married them in the first place. And then when you have problems, you don't look at divorce and walking away as a first resort, uh, first choice. You look at it as an absolute last resort. And in most cases, you're able to get through that together. And that keeps families together. And as families grow up with a little bit of homesteading in every home in America, valuing their home, children don't want to go that far from home if they can help it. And they certainly want to come home and visit more. And they want it to be a place that they bring the grandkids back, not just so grandma will babysit, but so they can experience the same things that they experienced when they were growing up. And they want to teach that to their children. I don't know. It sounds like a solution to me. It sounds like everything we lost, we lost when we lost the concept of homesteading and what it's really all about. Turning your house from a consumer into a producer. When it got easy to get a mortgage, when it got cheap to get a mortgage, when we became highly paid and successful as middle class Americans and everybody could have a home, the home went from producer to consumer. And it started consuming a lot more than money. It started to consume our lives. It started to consume our families. It started to consume our culture. It started to consume our communities. It isolated people till we all had our own box 
We're our own fence around our own box. And when we talk to each other, when we take the trash out or get out of the car on the way home in the evening or get in the car on the way home in the morning, and we became isolated. We became isolated, and we decided we're going to replace that with soccer games and SUVs and replace the community itself where soccer games used to be what the kids did on Saturday afternoon right in somebody else's backyard or in a common field. They just did it on their own. We can't put America back into a nostalgic Norman Rockwell view that never even really existed because that perfect America never did exist. But there were many things about the America of yesterday that were wonderful. And there's many things about the America today that are wonderful and the republic's worth fighting for. But how do you fight for a republic if you wouldn't fight for your own backyard? And you don't fight for things unless you value them. The homestead movement is not about self-sufficiency and rugged self-reliance and things like that. It's really about making the place you live into a place that you love. That is how you, that's how you fix America. That's how you change a culture subversively from the ground up. That's how we fix this. That's, and it's only one piece. I don't think if everybody just had a homestead, everything would be wonderful. No, but it puts us on track to regain what we've lost. A sense of value, a sense of honor, a sense of commitment, and a sense of belonging. If you want me to tell you the biggest problem in America today, the biggest reason for all our failures... The fact that we let these politicians run a fascist state and we're supposed to have a democratically elected republic. We let the businesses control everything. We let families fall apart. We let all this thing go on. We let it happen. The sense of belonging is missing. That's what's missing in the hearts of most of us. Courage, honor, and a sense that we belong with others who share those values. You restore that homesteading will happen. I just think we have to do it the other way around because people need to get back in touch with what it really means to value something again. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way